I invite you to turn in the Word of God to 1 Thessalonians, the Epistle of Paul in the New Testament, 1 Thessalonians to chapter 5. While you do that, I'll mention this evening, we'll be continuing our series looking at the thought life of disciples, of Christians, and ways in which it is different from the thinking of this world, or ways that the Lord has called us to think very intentionally, to meditate, and to imitate what we find in the Word. And this evening, as well as next week, Lord willing, the plan is to look at one of the words in Philippians 4.8, the word just, whatever is just. Now, some weeks ago, if you were here on July 4th, then you might recall the Holy Spirit led us in the Word to look at a duty that we have, an obligation to pray for all in positions of civil authority, as well as for outsiders, unbelievers. We saw that that is a duty. It's one of the things that the Word guides us to pray about. This morning, however, the Holy Spirit leads you to consider another group for whom we are called to pray, and it is simply verse 25 as we come to the end of this letter to a young church. 1 Thessalonians 5:25. hear the word of the Lord. Brothers, pray for us. And let's ask the Lord's blessing. Our Father, we thank you that you give us your holy word. We confess before you that without the light of your word, we would be lost. We would not know the gospel. We would be so darkened in our understanding of your will, not because you have not made it clear in creation how we ought to live, but because, as your word says, we suppress that knowledge. We ask this morning that by your Holy Spirit, in Christ's name, you would enable us to give attention to your word, to understand things rightly, to be shielded from error, in order that we might live out the very things that are described here. We ask all of this in Jesus' precious name, desiring his pleasure. Amen. This church belongs to a federation of about 120 churches called the United Reformed Churches in North America. So it's not a big federation by any means. And there are things that we have done to try to bind ourselves together. Some of this is a matter of wisdom. Some of it is a matter of principle. And one of these things which we have done is the formation of something called a church order. Now, a church order is kind of the rules by which we're going to play this game. Parts of that church order are clearly, explicitly required in the Bible. Other parts of it are, again, matters of wisdom, like the fact that as churches, the officers of the church determine that they will call two services every Sunday. That's a matter of wisdom. It's not required in the word to do so. But then you come in a part of the church order to an article that describes the duties of ministers of the word. What are the essential duties of a minister of the word? Well, our church order lists five. I wonder if you, especially children, could guess what is the first duty of a minister of the word, of a pastor? I would not fault you if you guessed that it was what I'm doing right now, preaching a sermon, or if you thought that it had to do with administration of the sacraments. I will give you a clue. It's, it's not those. It is the same first duty listed both for elders and for deacons. We all have the same first duty, and I'd submit that it's also your first duty, too. That first duty mentioned in the church order 
is to continue in prayer. And the reason for that is very simple. It is a way of demonstrating before the Lord and all others, and most critically at times to ourselves, that it is not our gifts, it is not our efforts that ultimately we rely upon. We believe God uses means. But prayer lays it clearly upon the Lord to bring about the things that we ask for. And then you think about that word continuing. It's not something that you did once and now, all right, I prayed and I'm going to move on. You know, kind of, I, I thank the Lord that someone who wants to be a minister in the URCNA, they only have to take the candidacy exams, generally, once. If they pass once, it's not something you keep coming back to. Prayer, on the other hand, you're never done. You're continuing in prayer. There are different ways, different approaches pastors have for this, and you probably have your own approach. I would encourage you to have an intentional approach. If there's anything you really believe matters and needs prayer, find ways to be intentional about it. One way that I've used in the past is to have separate stacks of note cards. Now I use a digital version, but it's the same idea. Where, in my case, for instance, I have a stack with all the individuals and families on the west side of this church, and then another one for the northeast, another for the southeast, and then a stack of visitors and officers. And I'm not doing anything fancy on, among other things I pray for, on Tuesdays, I reach into the west side stack. On Wednesdays, I reach into the northeast stack, so on and so forth. And I take two or three out. That might sound complicated. It takes about an hour to set up your stack. But what ends up happening is that not only are you praying for the body, but you find that the Lord is knitting your heart together with people that even if you don't speak with it very often, you feel connected. That's the work of the Holy Spirit doing that. If you were to have a stack like that of your own, and if you prayed for just three individuals or families per week, you'd pray for the whole church every single year, easy. But you see, it's reciprocal. It's not simply that pastors have been set aside to pray and they do it. It's not like an idea that used to exist about monks. The monks pray, and the knights, they fight, and then the farmers, they grow. And so the farmers are growing so that the monks can be praying. No, no, we are all called to pray. It's reciprocal. We pray for one another. And you find this principle all throughout the Old and New Testament that those who are placed by God as under-shepherds also have a relationship where they receive back these blessings from the church too. Most perhaps familiar, though not necessarily it, it ought to be that way, 1 Corinthians 9 speaks about how a person who labors full-time in the ministry of the word in order that the congregation might receive spiritual things ought to receive materially back. However uncomfortable that makes you feel, it's laid there in scripture, reciprocation. But that's not at all what Paul focuses on in 1 Thessalonians. He never mentions a word about that. Rather, his focus in chapter 1 and chapter 3 in the first place is about affection. He loves them, and he longs and delights to receive love back from them. In the very moment that we're having a sermon about prayer, there's an obvious need for prayer, and so I invite you in your hearts to do so. But there, Paul desires to have love back, and then there's the need for prayer back. You see in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 2, he says, We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. Now, verse 25, brothers, pray for us. 
So the Holy Spirit is doing something very simple in this passage. He's holding up an example of the importance, the necessity of the congregation praying for ministers of the word and missionaries. That's really what Paul and his people were. Notice it says us, not just Paul. It's a whole band of ministers of the word and missionaries. And especially those who providentially are knit to you. The Holy Spirit wants this to not just be a fact that you know, I know that I ought to do this, but to be a part of your life, to be a regular part of your life, just as we pray for the civil authorities and for any number of other things. And the way that we're going to consider this this morning is by looking at it under three main headings that all have to do with apostolic truths, three apostolic truths that drive us to pray for those who are vocational ministers and missionaries. If you're taking notes, the headings are going to fall under these terms. I'll clarify them as we come to them. But first, intervention. Second, instrumentality. Third, intercession. I'll say again, intervention, instrumentality, and intercession. Look at me at verse 25. And focus on one word in particular, the last word. Brothers, pray for us. And here's the first, and it's an obvious fact here, it's a simple truth. The first apostolic principle here is that the apostles believed and they taught that ministers and missionaries need divine intervention. They wouldn't be asking for prayer if they didn't believe that it will take God to bring these things about. It's not as simple as human resources. They don't just say, hey, brothers, you know, I'm lacking in this way over here. Can you meet my need? There's a place for that, but ultimately they are expressing dependence upon God. And for a variety of reasons at times, I imagine, if we were to ask people, you know, first ask, do you pray for pastors and missionaries? And you find someone who says, not really, not often, and then you ask why. Besides sheer forgetfulness, it may be that people think, well, they need it less than other people. Clearly, they're walking with the Lord, God has blessed them. However, this text makes it very clear that even Paul, even Paul needs prayer, and he's pleading for it. Now, why is that? You could probably survey 1 Thessalonians and the book of Acts and try to figure out, try to take some guesses, the circumstances, why he wants prayer, things like persecution. But it's much simpler, and I think more helpful, to just find other places where he asks for prayer, and he's very explicit. And I'll invite you to look at three with me. First, Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. The second passage will be two books over in Colossians. But Ephesians 6, 19 through 20, he says... Pray also for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Pause. Appreciate this. Paul, Paul is asking for prayer that he would find the words to say. And not only that he would find the words to say, but that he would have boldness to say it. Here he's longing for a spiritual boldness. And don't you acknowledge, too, that you need spiritual boldness 
to carry the faith forward. Not simply some self-assured, cocky, natural boldness. There are some people, I imagine, who thought they were called to the ministry because they were always spoiling for a fight. And they thought that's what it was, to go to battle with everyone over everything in the Bible all the time. Paul had a boldness, but by nature it would seem he was more timid than we would expect. The conviction of the Holy Spirit worked through him to bring the word forward, and so he asked for prayer. Then look at Colossians 4, verse 3. This is two books over. Here he says in verse 3, Pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Paul wants to go forth with the word. He knows he's been called to all the world. When he prays that a door may be opened, I have wondered whether this prayer was inspired by the literal door that was shut in the prison. He wants out. He wants to bring the gospel to all the people that Jesus Christ said Paul was going to go to. But he knows God works through means, and so he's asking for prayer. And here he doesn't ask for boldness so much as he prays that it would be clear, that I may make it clear. It's one thing to be bold, to be courageous. It's a different thing for people to actually understand what you're saying. And he doesn't lean on his own natural giftedness. He's asking the Holy Spirit through their prayer to give him that. And this is, again, one of those things, then, that we should be praying for pastors and for missionaries. God cause their message to be clear and understandable. That's hard because it's not one size fits all. Something that seems clear to you may not be clear to someone else. Communication falls over a whole range of styles and ways and words. And it requires the Holy Spirit. One more passage. If you go back a little bit, Romans chapter 15. Romans 15, verses 30 and 31 and 32. Here, note the strength of Paul's request when he says, I appeal. Romans 15, 30 and following. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, He could not be any more fervent in that command. I am appealing to you in the name of Christ by the love and by the Spirit. And what does he say? That you would strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea. Remember, there were people who were plotting to kill him. They had sworn that they would not eat until Paul was dead. That I be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. And the fact that he says that I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company means that those are not things that pastors take for granted. He knows that even if he survives the Judean killers, he may find that in Jerusalem, There are many Christians who simply don't want his presence. Paul was misunderstood. And pastors and elders and missionaries are often misunderstood. And they don't always have the measure of joy that they long for, and they certainly wish for refreshing. That's similar to today. Pastors are not, I wouldn't say, more precious to the Lord. But perhaps they are more despised and more opposed by the devil. 
because the devil does not want God's people to hear the things of God. And then they are beset by all kinds of weaknesses, just as other people are. I will not rehearse to you all of those various weaknesses. If you do want to have a more clear, a lengthier idea of how to pray, I might suggest a book to you. It's very short. It's a book by a man named Christopher Ash. Christopher Ash wrote a book called The Book Your Pastor Wishes You Would Read. And it's simply a description of some of the challenges in ministerial life. You have challenges too. I don't want you to come away from this thinking, oh, the pastor thinks he has a harder life. No, no. The whole point is everyone prays for everyone. Everyone prays for everyone. But here we see that even ministers need divine intervention. That's the first apostolic truth. The second one is also based on one particular word here, verse 1. Brothers. And notice that it's plural. Not singular, brothers. And notice that it's in the context, just a few verses later, he's going to say, have this letter read aloud to everyone when you're gathered together, congregation. So while it doesn't necessarily say it must be congregational prayer, I would draw from this, that's one of the ways that he's expecting them to pray. As a congregation, to pray for Paul and his assistants. What does this mean? It means that Paul is not relying simply on his own prayer. He doesn't just pray his own prayer and be done with it. And I would suppose that many of you do that, and it is to your heart. You pray for a thing deep on your heart, but you don't ask anyone else to pray. You're going through something, and you don't make it known to the congregation. You have not because you ask not, but then there are also those who may have less because they don't ask more. They don't ask more people to join with them in prayer. Paul solicits the prayer of the churches over and over again throughout the epistles. And this brings us to our second main heading. Apostolic truth is this. They believed in the instrumentality of concerted prayer. And you kids in particular, I want to be clear what I mean by that. Instrumentality just means God uses it. Kind of like if any of you have ever played that old game, Operation, do they still make it? Probably. Operation where you take the tweezers and you reach into this game with a picture of a, a person and you take out the little organs. It's gruesome when you think about it. I've never thought about it until now. This is why you don't make up analogies on, on the fly. But the, the instrument is doing the grabbing. There's a person using the instrument. Prayer is an instrument God uses. He's not dependent on it, but he chooses to use it. And when we say that the apostles teach the instrumentality of concerted prayer. Concerted means many people working together. Think of a concert, the instruments all working harmoniously. So concerted prayer as opposed to individual prayer. I want to be clear about something when I say this. God is not constrained by the number of people who pray. He can use one or two or three people praying about a thing. And he has many times. You find instances in the Old Testament. For instance, you have Moses in Exodus chapter 32, praying for God to not bring judgment upon Israel. And Moses seems to be alone there, the intercessor, and God responds. Even then, Moses is a picture of Christ who was to come, the true intercessor. But then, John chapter 17, you have the famous story of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, the hours before he's going to be crucified. He's praying, and he pleads with his fellow disciples to pray with him. And they do not. And our salvation rests single-handedly in the prayers of our Savior at that time. He's praying for us, and that is enough if God wills it. 
And it has often comforted me to think no one knows what I'm going through, and I am not comfortable telling anyone, but Christ knows. And his prayers are sufficient. And yet, there does seem to be a correlation, a mysterious relationship that we find throughout the Bible between many people, especially whole congregations united in prayer for the same thing, and God's determination to act to pour out great blessing. You find this in both the Old and the New Testament. For instance, in Ezra chapter 8, you have a situation where the Jews who are in Babylon are about to embark on a journey back to Jerusalem across the desert, over a thousand miles, mostly on foot, with small children, everything. This is a big deal. And they're fearful. And Ezra gathers them together to pray. And it says in verse 23 of Ezra 8, So we fasted and we implored our God for this, and he listened to our entreaty. You can find many instances like this throughout the Old Testament. Or in the New Testament, in the book of Acts, over and over again, this is the case. Acts chapter 12, verse 15, for instance, says Peter was being kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made uh, made to God by the church. As they're all gathered together, because remember, Peter eventually is released, the Lord sends an angel, and Peter comes out and he knocks on the door where the congregation is at prayer and they don't answer the door. They're busy praying. They're not expecting this is how soon God might act. Or Acts chapter 4, verse 31, the congregation is praying for boldness. It says, And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And so again, you have this instance of the congregation being united in heart, soul, and prayer, and the Lord responds to their prayer. I'm giving you just a handful of instances. There are dozens of these in the Bible. There seems to be a correlation. Now, why is that? I don't confess to understand or to be able to explain it perfectly. I think we are more in a position to perceive it and to pursue it. We see it in the word, and so we're going to seek it by the Spirit. And that's how many things that God has set up are. I don't fully grasp or understand them, but I perceive them. And so I'll act on them. But if I was going to venture a guess, why has God so correlated our united prayer with his willingness to act in amazing ways It may be because in those times when we are united in prayer, we most approximate what we shall be like in glory. Remember, Jesus prays, John chapter 17 again, his prayer to his father, his father, that they would be one, even as you and I are one. And in prayer, we come together in faith, hope, and love. It's a picture like that which is in heaven, where you see the martyrs in Revelation chapter 13, all gathered before the throne saying the same thing. And there is a picture of us in glory. Or it may simply be that as a good father, he wants to encourage us. He associates blessings with the things he wants us to do. In any case, this is the second apostolic truth, the instrumentality of concerted prayer. As we move into the third, the final of the headings, I have a question for you. What do you think made the apostle confident that God would answer with goodwill? And I trust many of us know the answer. I am not confident all of us 
walk in the answer. That when we go before God in prayer, we are convinced and moved and animated by the answer. And yet it's possible that there may be here people as well who don't sincerely know the answer. What gave the apostles confidence that God would answer with goodwill? There's this correlation, but it can't be simply that they, well, I see the correlation, and so I trust that if I can get everybody to pray, there will be an answer. That's mechanistic. That's superstitious. Just to think, well, if we all pray, God must answer because he will. Their faith is not in prayer itself. Prayer is just a means. Nor is it in their sense of worthiness. You have all kinds of places where Paul makes it very clear. He says, I'm the chief of sinners. I'm not worthy. Why are they confident? I invite you to turn with me to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verse 31, if any of you are the sort to keep a prayer journal, there are any number of ways that you could do this, verses you could use, but a common one is Romans 8, 31, to have that be something you read each time before you pray, 8, 31 and following. And you'll see exactly why this is the third apostolic truth. They believed and they taught that the church's intercession is grounded upon Christ's intercession. The church's intercession, our ability to pray and ask for things, is grounded on the fact that Christ intercedes with the Father for us. Romans 8.31, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? It's not like the father had doled out some cheap things and he was holding back the good thing for himself. He's already given the best thing. He gave his own son up to death for us. And if he would do that, then why would we doubt that he would be full of goodwill in everything? Verse 33, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who is raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Christ presents himself as the grounds of all of our intercession. And what Paul says here is essentially the gospel, that God took upon himself our human nature, that the Son, the eternal Son of God, took to himself true humanity, body, soul, spirit, and that because he bore in himself the penalty for our sin and yet was equal in dignity and power to the Father, such to make a perfect offering, therefore we can have the assurance through faith we are united with him. He is chosen to receive simply through faith that you who believe are counted one with Christ. His righteousness is reckoned to you. You are justified, as it says, it is him who justifies. You are justified in him. That has to drive us when we pray. It can't just be, I know my pastor needs it. Need is not the ground. It can't be, well, I know I'm supposed to do it. Duty is not the ground. None of those things guarantee the goodwill of God. If anything, our duty drives home that we don't deserve it. But Christ, who has prayed faithfully for us, 
gives us the assurance that we can pray confidently for all, especially in this case of our text of pastors, ministers, and missionaries. So what have we seen this morning? The Holy Spirit has been leading you, I think, very simply, very obviously, to consider the need that these officers in the church have of divine intervention. I'll say again, I do not believe that pastors are more precious to the Lord. I do believe, I am convinced, that they are more despised and opposed than many others in the church. And that they are beset by weaknesses just as others. They do not have everything all figured out. They are constantly, and Paul himself, he throws up his hands in one passage and he says, who is sufficient for these things? If there were a pastor who answered that, I am, get rid of him. (laughs) He's, what? And so the Lord brings this to us in order that he might assure us that he will answer. He hasn't led us to this like a cliff and told us, jump off. I'm not answering you. But in order that we might receive the blessings that he's ordained from eternity to give. The book of Ephesians says he's ordained certain works that we should walk in them. And so the Lord creates these means. There's a story. I've heard it. I've read it in so many places. I've never been able to track down the source. So if you can find it, I want it. But it's the famous story of the gifted preacher Charles Spurgeon. I know most of us have heard of him. Charles Spurgeon had thousands of people attending his church every, every week for about 50 years. He stayed the course. Not everyone does, and we are to thank God for that. And it was not uncommon for people to visit. They're in London. You know, all those people who are there every Sunday aren't necessarily members. They're visiting London, and they want to hear Spurgeon preach. And the story is that one day a group of college-aged students came, and they were greeted by a person, and they did not realize it was Spurgeon himself. This was before. There were photographs everywhere, video, all that. And this person asked whether or not they wanted to see the boiler room, the furnace room of the church. And they, out of politeness, agreed. And he led them down to the basement. This was sometime, maybe an hour before the service was to begin. And he pushed open the door, and there were hundreds of people gathered to pray for the service. And he called that the powerhouse, the boiler room, the furnace of the ministry of the Metropolitan Tabernacle. Now, that's for us, that'd be every last person. For them, it was a portion, a portion of the people who had committed themselves to praying. My point in saying that is not to say, well, I think at this church that exactly needs to be represented. What I would say is I am not ashamed to baldly plead with you, pray intentionally, organize to pray. Anything that matters merits intentionality. And that is especially true in the means that God, through his wisdom, foolish as it may seem to us, has appointed to be the primary means for the conversion of all of his people in the world. It merits prayer. Paul says, verse 25, brothers, pray for us. Again, in 2 Thessalonians, the next book over, he says, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you, and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men. I would rather have you pray one prayer before a sermon than a dozen praises after. The praises fade off. Every pastor appreciates them. But to know that the people of God has been so much more beneficial for every pastor before a service, to know the people pray. They don't have to see you pray. We can generally sense by the fruitfulness of the ministry. 
people are praying. And that is what I would ask of you. I leave you with this as a charge, verse 11 of 2 Corinthians 1, and then we'll pray even here. You also must help us by prayer, so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted to us through the prayers of many. We should look forward to the blessing God will give. Let's pray even now. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for having purposed to us blessings of so many kinds. We thank you for the gift of your Holy Word. We thank you for the way it declares to us that you, beyond all expectation or comprehension, chose to reconcile us to yourself, not on the basis of our own works, but to work in us a transformation to bring about faith. And then even to cause us to persevere. Our Father, we praise you that in glory we will experience a city incomparably beautiful, full of love and goodness forever. And we ask to that end that you would please continue to cause this work to be upheld, that you would bless not only myself and Pastor Phil and the elders here, but Lord, that you would look upon this morning those whom you have called to this task throughout the world, we ask for their sake that you would sustain them, especially those who are at this time facing dire persecution or even death. Our Heavenly Father, draw near to them. We ask that in all these things, our Lord Jesus Christ be glorified. For in his name we pray. Amen.